Amen. Okay, well, as, um, as Matt said, we are looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I want you to imagine, start off with, that you, hey, maybe you come to lunch with us afterwards, and you are sat in our house. Okay, I know that's a fate worse than death for some of you, um, but you're sat there, and, you, and Sue's on the phone, and she's on the phone to one of our daughters, and you are trying your hardest not to listen, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because you and I, we're sat there listening to her on the phone, and she says things like, you did what? And seriously, I do not believe it. And the more you hear, you think, what is going on? And finally, Sue hangs up, and you, you and I look at her and go, what was all that about? Because you only got to hear one side of the conversation. Okay, and that is what it is like reading uh, this letter. You get to hear Paul's side of the conversation. And what you hear leaves you thinking, what was going on? And the answer is a whole load of relational baggage and breakdown was going on. Okay, if that is the case, listen to Proverbs 26, 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Okay, if you have ever grabbed a passing dog by the ears, you have probably learned never to do that again. Okay, so why get involved in an ancient quarrel? Why get involved in, a, in Paul's relationship problems with people in Corinth from 2,000 years ago? What has that got to do with you? Well, did you notice the two words, two themes that keep getting repeated in this passage? Okay, joy and pain that Paul's relationship with the Christians in Corinth, relationships which should have brought joy, were bringing a whole load of pain. Okay, but think about that, because that is so often the case, isn't it, in our own relationships, with our relationships with our friends and with our, our families. So in other words, Paul's experience with the church in Corinth has a whole load to teach us about our own relationships. Okay, so we're going to look at three things. The pursuit of joy, the problem of sin, and the power of forgiveness. First one, the pursuit of joy. Blaise Pascal wrote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves, because they think they'll be happier if they're dead. In other words, what Pascal is saying is that we are all looking for happiness. We're all looking for joy. And every decision that we make, we make because we think it will make us happier, either now or in the future, in eternity, if you're a Christian. As Pascal says, it's why some go to war and some don't. It's why some follow one course of action and others avoid the very same course of action. 
Okay, but it is also that desire for joy and happiness that lies behind our relationships, isn't it? I mean, I doubt that anyone ever entered a friendship or started going out with someone or got married because they thought, this will make me more miserable, so I'm going to do it. Okay, that is not what Jeremy and Emma decided. Jeremy did not see Emma on a volleyball court in Barcelona and say, hmm, if I marry her, I will be more miserable. Okay, that is not how it works, is it? We want our relationships to be a source of joy for us. That's why we pursue them. So look what Paul says in verse 23. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Okay, so Paul feels like he is being accused in court because he is in the public court, in in the court of public opinion of the church there in Corinth. Because on his last visit, he had told them that he would visit again soon, but he hadn't. Instead, he'd written this letter that has now been lost to history, And at least some in the church were using his failure to return as a weapon against him. Okay, so Paul's in the dock. He is accused of having neither the moral character nor the decisiveness to be a leader, that he doesn't value or love these Christians in Corinth enough. And when a witness is called to the witness stand in a court of law, a a Bible may be passed to them, mightn't it? And they put their hand on that Bible and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Here, Paul goes one further. He goes better than that because he calls God to be, he calls God to the witness stand. He calls God to stand in that witness stand. The God who knows every heart and every motive. And Paul says, God can testify. The reason I didn't come back was to spare you, to spare you from me having to cause you even more pain for me for me having to be even more firm with you chapter 2 verse 1 for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you how do they read that back in Corinth how might they read that okay back in Corinth they could read that as oh okay so Paul thinks that he can come here and beat us with some kind of emotional stick, does he? He thinks he can come here and discipline us in some way, that he can play the strong leader. Which is why he says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now at the moment, you know, if you read the press, or you know, the press generally, especially the Christian press, It can feel like every day there is coming yet another new scandal in the media about abusive church leadership. And it can seem like every pastor and every priest is just in it to fleece the flock, either sexually or financially or for their own glory. Paul's vision of leadership is 
fundamentally different from that, isn't it? His relationship with them, he says, is not to lord it over them. Now, have you ever been lorded over by someone? You know, maybe you've had a boss or a co-worker, and they're not just bossy, they dominate and restrict, and they slowly try and crush the autonomy out of you. Or maybe, sadly, you've been in a relationship like that. Maybe you feel like you're in one now, okay? And it's been suffocating or manipulating, or it feels like your individuality is being undermined at every turn. You feel like you're being lorded over. And Paul says, that is not what Christian ministry should be like. It is not, he says, what I'm like, and it's not what our relationship with each other as Christians should be like. We don't lord it over others, Paul says, because, why? Because there's only one Lord, and it's not Paul. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, he says, we work with you for your joy. Okay, so the thing that motivated Paul in all of his relationships in the church there in Corinth was to partner with them, to work with them, and partner with them in such a way as to bring them joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, It's a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. And Paul would add, Yep, and it is the duty of every Christian leader and every Christian to help each other be as joyful as we can. And Paul knows that that joy does not come by him imposing himself on others. Verse 24. For you stand firm in your faith. You Corinthians, you stand strong by trusting Jesus for yourself. Your joy grows ever deeper through your ever-deepening relationship with him, not by me or any other leader trying to coerce you or motivate you with fear. And for Paul, this was never a one-way street, was it? Okay, look at verses two and three. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Now, in the world of counseling and psychology, codependency is a bad thing, isn't it? You don't want to be in a codependent relationship. You have a couple okay, where one needs, he has needs, and he keeps taking from the other. But the other, the wife maybe, or the girlfriend, has this need to be needed, so just keeps on giving. And it becomes this vicious circle of needing and the need to be needed. And yet here, interestingly, Paul acknowledges the right side of being codependent. Because Paul is not an independent maverick. But just as these Christians in Corinth need him, so he needs them. And if their relationship with him is broken, it doesn't just cause them pain, it causes him pain. And you know, relational conflict can be deeply painful, can't it? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's friends or family or marriage or church, relationships should be a source of serious joy for all of us. And those relationships should just fill us up. And when, you, when you're in relationships like that, you spend time with this person and you feel better as a, as a result. And, you, and once you've spent time with them, you leave them feeling better as a result of having spent time with you. As Paul says in verse 3, For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all, that what makes you joyful is what makes me joyful. I mean, it's just basic relational stuff, isn't it? We want to relate to each other in ways that bring each other joy, not pain. And yet, if relational joy can fill you up, relational conflict can be incredibly draining, can't it? So there's no way, Paul is saying, that I would have made this decision not to visit you and instead write to you just to hurt you. Why would I do that? He did it, verse 4, because he loves them. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And yet, the letter that he wrote to them that has now been lost, it did cause them pain. It did cause them relational pain. It caused them emotional distress. So what was Paul thinking? Why write that letter? Well, he was thinking what any good parent, what any good friend, what any good spouse sometimes has to think, that sometimes if you really love someone, if you really want them to experience true joy, sometimes there is a place for confrontation. Because sometimes someone whom we love can run after stuff that promises happiness in the short term, but in the long term, you know it will leave them more empty and more washed up and more lost than before. You see, when Paul says, verse 3, I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all, he is probably being deliberately ambiguous. Because he could mean, you know, as I've just said, Guys, what makes you happy is what makes me happy. So why would I seek to hurt you? But he could also be meaning, guys, the basis of our relationship is that we get joy from the same thing. That what gives me joy is what gives you joy. That's what our relationship is based on. And there lies the problem, doesn't it? Because what do you do when one side of a relationship between friends or between a husband and wife or within churches is seeking joy and happiness in the wrong place. Second point, the problem of sin. Now, one of the features of our current culture is this idea of hate speech, that you can be harmed by what people say. So we have uh, universities that have or are safe spaces where students know that they won't be exposed to anything that they might disagree with. 
We have microaggressions. We have trigger warnings where people are warned up front that something might be said or shown to them that, that could cause upset. I even read last week that a recent production of Shakespeare now comes with its own set of trigger warnings. The problem is, okay, sometimes someone who loves you will disagree with you and they will say hard things to you and they will confront you, not because they don't love you, but because they do. Because they know that there is more and greater and deeper joy to be had elsewhere than where you are currently looking for it. And Paul's relational problems with the church in Corinth were for just those reasons. You see, in his previous painful visit, Paul had been willing to confront one person in particular who was pursuing happiness in the wrong places. Okay, we don't know for certain who that guy was, who it was, or what it was precisely that he was pursuing. I mean, is he the same guy who Paul has to deal with in uh, 1 Corinthians, who's engaged in sexual immorality? Okay, he's seeking joy, he's seeking pleasure sexually in the wrong places outside of marriage. Or was he someone opposing Paul's leadership in the church and he was seeking joy, as sometimes we can, he's seeking happiness from power and position? Okay, we don't know. Okay, what we can guess is that when Paul confronted him, a majority of the church sided with Paul, but they did nothing else about it. And so, as so often happens, the sin of this man begins dragging other people into it and in with him because the majority are now compromising while the minority are openly siding with this man against Paul. And so Paul withdrew and realizing that another visit would just inflame things further, he wrote to them. Now, if you have ever had to do this, if you've ever had to write to or confront someone you love and who you know is not going to want to hear it, you will understand something of Paul's emotions here because he agonized over this. Verse 4 again. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. As one commentator says, for Paul, this was gut-wrenching. This is heartbreaking. He could barely see what he's writing through his tears. Okay, but here's the thing. Paul wrote that letter because he knew that it wasn't for him alone to deal with this. This wasn't just a pastor versus the person sort of thing. This was for the church to come together and deal with. And so he wrote to them, telling them plainly, guys, you cannot just turn a blind eye to this. Your love for this man demands that you try and turn him back. And it seems like it did the trick. Verses 5 and 6. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, for such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. 
So it seems like you know, they, at least the majority of the church there in Corinth, withdrew Christian fellowship from this man, that in some way they communicated to him, friend, you can't, and we can't pretend that you are one of us, or, or, or even one, or that you are one with us, or even one of us, if you carry on like this. Now, you and I, okay, we live in a consumer culture. So if you don't want to come to church, you don't. And if you don't like the worship or the preaching, you can go elsewhere, can't you? And if people criticize you or question your beliefs or behavior, you can just go to the church down the road. They'll have you. They'll welcome you with open arms. For these guys, there was only one church. And if you were out of relationship with these Christians, you were out of Christian relationship. And it was under the weight of that punishment, Paul calls it, that this man listened and he repented. The problem is that sin confronted, the problem of sin confronted is followed by another problem, isn't it? Verse seven, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You see, when like this man, okay, you have been caught in some sin, and those whom you love and who love you have confronted you over it, and you see it, and you begin to realize how much your actions have pained others, and you are genuinely sorry and repentant for it, that can be a crushing load to bear, can't it? Because you begin to see yourself and your sin for what it really is, as you really are. And you know that everyone else can see that too. And you can feel exposed and naked and drowning in guilt. Okay, but those who do the confronting, they also face a problem. Verse 11, they need to restore this man so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, if you've had to confront someone because of their sin, two temptations lie before you, don't they? You can see the damage that this person has done and the pain they have caused you or others and you can hold it against them, maybe even become bitter towards them, because the whole point of your relationship with them was that you were to bring joy to each other, but they've gone and brought you pain, maybe deep pain, and that can be a potent cause of resentment. Or you can become proud, and you look down on them, you know, having somebody that you can discipline, you know, you can, that can make you feel better than, about yourself, can't it? Because, hey, you look better they look because, because they look worse. And both bitterness and self-righteousness, Paul says, open the door to Satan. And through that door, he will drag further division. And we're not unaware of that, Paul says. We know how he uses relational pain to divide friends and families and churches. So, what's the answer? Last point, you'll be glad to hear, the power of forgiveness. 
Okay, look at verses six to eight. This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So sin should be confronted. But when repented of, sin must also be forgiven. And having turned away from him in sorrow because of his sin, the church must now turn towards him in love because the aim was never simply to discipline him. It was to see him restored. It was to see him start again. It was to see him stand firm in Christ. It was to see him begin again to pursue joy in all the right places. Only forgiveness has the power to do that. Only forgiveness has the power to rescue someone from the crushing burden of guilt. Only forgiveness has the power to clothe our nakedness. Only forgiveness has the power to rescue, not just from the prison of guilt, but from the prison of self-righteousness or bitterness. Because forgiveness decides it will not pay back evil with evil or pain with pain or relational hurt with ever more relational hurt. Do you know what's interesting here? The verb that Paul uses here for forgiveness, it's not the usual one. He uses the verb that means to show grace to someone. Free grace. Because that's what this man needs, isn't it? He needs for this church to line up beside him and treat him in a way he could never deserve to be treated. If you know anything about your own heart, it's what we all need. But how do you do that? Albert Einstein is credited as saying, weak people revenge, strong people forgive, intelligent people ignore. Really? Seriously? You are supposed to just ignore the pain and the grief that someone has inflicted on you? As if this has never happened? That you're supposed to just brush this under the carpet? How does that do justice to the wrongness of sin? The wife whose husband has committed adultery, the person whose friend has trashed their relationship and their reputation, the parent whose child has lied and stolen from them. You're supposed to just ignore these things? That's intelligent? Guys, that is not intelligent. That is deeply unjust. Because sin matters. Relational hurt matters. The fact that we should seek each other's joy and not pain matters. So... How can you forgive rather than ignore? How can you show free grace and not seek revenge? How can you do that without sweeping it under the carpet? I want you to see what Paul says in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake, 
in the presence of Christ. You know, when you are in the presence of Christ, you know that he bears in his body the wounds of the cross, the wounds that say that he died for you, that he paid the ultimate price for you. Why? To secure your forgiveness, to pay for your sin. And so when you are in the presence of Christ, you begin to realize the measure of your own sin and all the times that you have sought joy in all the wrong places and the price that he had to pay to rescue you from your guilt. Guys, that kills self-righteousness because you realize again, standing in his presence, you have no righteousness apart from him. But in the presence of Christ, and those wounds now glorified, you also see how he has paid, not just for your sin, but for the repentant person's sin. God has not swept this under the carpet. This sin against you mattered so much that the Son of God had to die for it. But being in the presence of Christ, you will also know that you are in the presence of the judge of all the world. And if the person has not repented, you know that one day that person will have to pay the price for that sin for themselves. Guys, it is the position that we would all be in if it weren't for the grace that Jesus has extended to us. And when you know that, instead of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, you can just begin to feel compassion taking root. So when you are in the presence of Christ, risen, ascended, glorified, but bearing in his body the wounds of the cross, you begin to realize the true cost of sin but also the depth of Christ's love for you and the grace that he has shown you that you could never deserve. And you begin to find the power to forgive and show grace to the one who has hurt you. There's one last thing that recognizing that you are in the presence of Christ will give you. In Psalm 16, David writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our relationships are supposed to bring us joy. And when they don't, the pain is great. But when you know that God and your relationship with him is your ultimate joy, and that he is the source of all of your other joys. And when you are in the presence of Christ, seated at his right hand, that has the power to give you the joy and the courage you need to face the pain of confronting sin and the joy and the courage that you need to face the cost of forgiving sin when you must. Let's pray.